1: I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on press box Access. Welcome to the second of my two-part conversation with Charles Pierce, one of the great sports writers of the past half century, and one of my all-time favorite scribes. In his second episode, Pierce steps away from his job as Esquire's lead political writer to share some of his experiences with Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, the NBA in the 1980s, and the National Sports Daily. And we go back to 1997 and hear from Pierce about how he reported and wrote his legendary GQ magazine profile of Tiger Woods. You know, the one where young tiger told dick jokes. Yeah, that story. If you haven't already, check out part one with Pierce. You'll hear his tales about bars, Bill Buckner's heir, Ben Johnson's drug scandal, and the 1980s Big East basketball. And Pierce provided insight into Larry Bird, the person and the basketball icon. We begin the second episode where we left off with more Bird talk. Let's pick it back up. When Bird first came out of Indiana State, And joined the Celtics. He was thought of somebody who didn't like to talk to the media, quiet. Did you see a change in him through his career in terms of how he dealt with the media on the day-to-day scrums?
2: He showed up in town and he was practically agoraphobic. I mean, he had his house out in Brookline and he would go to practice and go to his house, go to the game and go to his house, get on the bus, go to the airport, fly to the game, fly back, get on the bus, get on the car go to his house. The only time you got to see him outside the basketball court was he would mow his lawn on Saturday and people would come and park in his neighborhood in Brookline and watch Larry mow his lawn. It was, thick, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a great, and he, he was fine with it. He would wave, wouldn't talk to anybody, but he would wave and, you know, people would take his picture and be out there in little, you know, Toro lawnmower bonus, mowing his lawn. <laughs> And I I always found that was pretty charming. But as he grew and grew and grew and grew and and became more open and began to understand, to be comfortable and understand his place in the world, he opened up in a lot of ways and revealed himself to be the interesting human being that he is. Uh, I'll never forget that he played, they played a game right at the end of his career. The night that Magic Johnson had announced he had been diagnosed with HIV. And he was visibly shaken. He says now it's the only time he ever stepped on a basketball court and didn't want to play. He's quite open about that. And after the game, he talked about you know the the impact that it had on him and how and he was literally. If you ever see a video of it, he's legitimately shell shocked. Um, And he talked about his father's suicide which was absolutely persona non grata, or not persona, subject non grata, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. for almost his entire career. I mean, Sports Illustrated in, the, in, a, in a profile while he was in Indiana State mentioned that his father had committed suicide, and the, he didn't speak to Sports Illustrated for 10 years. It wasn't until Jack McCallum, mm-hmm. you know, brokered a piece somehow. But it that was the most tender part, tender part of his psyche. I mean, it was, you know, his father had had literally committed suicide while on the phone with his mother. His father apparently was yeah. a was a Korean War vet who would come home with you know PTSD before they knew what PTSD was, and never quite got over it, and called his mother, and killed and shot himself while he was on the phone with her. Uh, which is, by the yeah. way, why he and Pete Marovich got know, I mean, Pete Marovich is brief period with the Celtics, uh, he and Bird became very close because Pete Maravich's mother had done the same thing. Right. Um, and, you know, Larry said, you know, it, it, it... He still wouldn't say the word suicide, but he said, you know, I haven't felt like this since the day my dad passed away. And I was okay. bored because he volunteered it. Nobody asked him, you know, can you compare this to, you know, the day your father died. He just volunteered it in front of everybody. And then everybody... You know, a lot of the people who didn't know the story were running around, you know, asking Jackie McMullen or me or Bob Ryan, you know, what, you know, what the deal was. And for him to open up on that, that was a measure of how he had grown as a caring, sensitive, intelligent human being over the course of his public life. And I just, uh, I found, I found that particular moment incredibly moving.
1: Well, he obviously grew as a person, and, and you witnessed that. You also witnessed the growth of pro basketball itself because of him and Magic, and and Jordan comes in after them. As a writer, a journalist, in that era, access was different. You talked about that when you talked about the Big East. What was it like covering the NDA in those days?
2: Well, I was I was very lucky, in a sense, in that every spring— my job at the Herald, before I started writing columns, was to write sidebars from the visitors' locker room. So not only did, you know, I get to know the Celtics because we were traveling with them, really, but I got to know the Hawks of that era, the Dominique Wilkins Hawk, uh, the, the, obviously the Lakers of that era, you know, the Bucks of that era with Sidney Moncriek, the Rockets when, you know, Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson were there, and the Pistons, at, you know, right in the late 80s with, you know, my favorite human being, one of my favorite human beings of all time, Vinny Johnson, and... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, why do you say that? I'm curious. Oh, I love Vinny. Vinny was Vinny was the most basic human being I ever met. Vinny, Vinny, first of all, I loved the way he played. You know, you get off the bench firing and you put the ball in the air and you don't stop till you come out of the game. <laughs> and second of all... The microwave. I loved, he loved, I loved his, his, his like, physique. He was, a you know the giant chest and stuff. And, uh, you know, he always looked to me, Shelby Strother was the first one to make this uh, make this comparison. He always said Vinny looked like he should be like an African diplomat. He should have had one of those, you know, whatever those things that fly with or whatever, you know, representing Liberia at the UN. Sheesh. But I used to love to talk to Vinny. And, and, and of course, this was also the Pistons, not only of Isaiah Thomas, but of John Sally and of the incredibly reclusive Dennis Rodman when he was a youngster, So, I, I mean, I got to know the other teams pretty well. Uh, John Sally used to, you know, still, you know, I haven't seen him in a long time, but he would give me, give me grief for my Hawaiian shirts. Uh, you know, every day, hey, nice shirt, pal. And, and we'd talk and, you know, Sally would, Sally had grown up with his mother as a Jehovah's Witness and he had been brought door to door by her. That's where he learned how to be as glib and funny as he was. <laughs> but I would, Vinny would tell stories uh, about growing up in Brooklyn, and he used to ride his bike to the various playgrounds to, uh, to play, you know, pickup games when he was growing up, and he didn't want his bike to get stolen, so he used to put his bike under his arm and crawl up the cyclone fence and padlock it to the top of the fence and then climb back down and play all afternoon <laughs> and then climb back up and unlock his bike and then bring it back down and ride it home. Oh, that's great! Vinny, Vinny, Vinny bought a red—I I, want to say it's a Ferrari. I'm probably wrong, but he bought a red sports car, and he liked it so much he bought an identical one. <laughs> he it, had him in stereo. He was, he, was just, he was just open and honest, and 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 funny and real. And I, you know, I just—I just—I I used to look forward to Piston series because I could get to talk. I I could get to talk to Vinny.
1: In general, Charlie, in those days, at the Herald and then at the National, Sports Daily, and um, the NBA at that point in general, how did the players, coaches get along with writers? Was there as much, you know, like you said, the fellowship, you're not a homer, but there was, like, you're all part of something.
2: Well, yeah, we, we, all, we all knew each other. I mean, it, it was, you know, the Celtics-Lakers days, we all knew we'd see each other in April. You know, and there's the, the traveling caravan of national NBA writers, and then those of us from, you know, Boston and LA and Detroit and Atlanta and Milwaukee to an extent and Philadelphia a little bit at the beginning of the 80s. You know, we, you know, we we all knew we'd have this, you know, this rolling convention every spring. You know, we'd go and, you know, I'd be at home for, the, you know, obviously be at home for the Bostons. Then. then we'd all move to the, you know, the airport Marriott in Los Angeles or the, you know the you know some Marriott out in the suburbs in Detroit or or uh, you know the Omni in Atlanta and you know it, it just became a regular ske- regularly scheduled thing and you know it, it, you know we all we all bonded together and then you know the, the NBA people obviously bonded together uh, and you know we, we we would we would have these two little tribes that got along splendidly by and large uh, that would gather every spring. And, or, you know, for the all-star game, obviously, but then every spring or, you know, seven games or five games or whatever. And it was, it was, it was just, you know, it was something you came to rely on. It was like going to spring training. I mean, except you were going to a championship series. Uh, You know, I remember, and everybody, I mean, at the hospitality suite, at the NBA finals, everybody showed up. I mean, I remember drinking a beer with Stephen Stills before I knew who he was. And before, I I didn't even recognize him until like five minutes into the conversation. Really? I remember that David Stern came to the hospitality suite in L.A. one time. Come on. No, honest to God. And he sat down and Jan Hubbard from Dallas and Fran Blindberry from Houston uh, organized. They ordered a bunch of those little one-man Marriott pizzas that you could get. And they put a jar on the bar, the hospitality suite, and inaugurated the first annual Uh, hit the commissioner with a pizza for a buck contest (laughs) for NBA charities. And we started winging, you know, those pizzas into the wall over David Stern's head. And finally, David Stern looked around and said, I'm getting the hell out of here. I mean, that that was just the kind, that's just the way things were.
1: I always felt at times like I was in a circus. I was traveling around with these people uh from different cities. We'd be at these events and it was like we were part of this rollicking circus.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one, you know, that was the uh you know, that was that was what I missed the most when I got out of daily sports writing. Was not being part of of you know, not 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 being part of this, you know, band of gypsy misfits. <laughs> Oh, you know, wandered from event to event and had the same concerns and had the same joys and the same, you know, sorrows. And, and I remember, you know, when before I, I went to the National and before I went out, the late Alan Greenberg, who was then writing a column in Hartford. Right. Was offered the job I eventually took to write for the main event, the long form piece in the middle of the paper every day he was offered that job and he turned it down specifically because he didn't want to leave the traveling circus. Good. And that's the only reason I wound up at the national is because I took the job. He turned down. Somebody had, had uh, you know, I think it was Alex Wolf. Somebody had boosted me to Rob Flayer, who was doing the hiring for that, uh, for that section. And, uh, you know, at that point, you know, I wanted to get out of the Herald because I wanted to, I wanted to break nationally, and it just wasn't happening.
1: Right. We've had a couple of writers talking about the National, the Sports Daily, that Beloved in the Tribe, lasted a couple of years, Frank DeFord's creation. Uh, when you think of the National in your time there, what comes to mind first?
2: Well, I mean, I knew I knew Johnette from the Pistons games. Johnette Howard. I mean, we got to be yeah. really good friends uh, in, uh, you know, every, seeing each other every spring in the playoffs. She was part of the the annual circus around the NBA playoffs. So I knew Johnette. I had met Peter Richmond before. And of course I knew Ian Thompson because he was across town. And I, I know I'm repeating what Johnette told you because I, I listened to the podcast with her. Thank it, was you. The best, it was the best job I ever had. And I spent the entire time I had it knowing that it was no possible way it could last because you know the business plan was just it was it was written by Marvin Sets. I mean it was, <laughs> uh, it was it was. I mean I remember Mike Lupica left in the spring of 1991. We folded in June. I think he left in March or April, and he was writing that uh, the dot 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 column, the dot 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 column exactly. Yeah. the old Jimmy Cannon three dot bullet column, and I had done a couple of those for the Herald, and Frank called me up. And he said, we want you to take over, you know, this spot. And I said to Frank, I said, okay, I'm willing to do it, but I'm going to need more money. Good He move. said, well, how much more money do you need? And I said, I, I can't even remember. I quoted him a figure that was, I mean, you, you, you if, if you heard it, you would think I was on mushrooms. And Frank said, all right, I'll get right on it. And I, I swear to God, if I had asked for, You know, a a Mercedes 2A ZL pulled by snow white unicorns. One would have been in my driveway the next morning. (laughs) And I got off the phone and I turned to my wife and I said, I got good news. We're making, you know, X amount more money this year. And I said, I got bad news. There's no way this thing (laughs) survives. Right, right. The next year. Well, I actually
1: have a few copies of The National in my attic above me as we speak. Um, And, you know, I was early in my career at that point and didn't have the fortune to join that circus. Um, But uh, it has a sweet spot in my own memory just as a reader and as somebody I aspired to be like uh, the writers there.
2: It didn't last, it didn't last, but it it was a good moment. It couldn't possibly last. Emilio Oscaraga. The Mexican, you know, billionaire who was behind it, the Mexican Rupert Murdoch. Right. Uh, you know, he was into it for a draw of $150 million over 10 years. We went through it in eight months. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you should have taken a look at some of his expense accounts.
2: Well, no, it wasn't just the expense accounts. It was, it was the bizarre stuff they spent it on. I think Johnette talked about uh, the, the, the guy's wife who was involved in, 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 one of, in one of the sweetheart deals they sold. They put us together with some sort of piggyback Ma Bell telephone system where you had to enter what appeared to be a nuclear launch code to make any kind of phone call. <laughs> uh, and at one point, this was another thing that was set up by some friend of a friend. One, At one point, the entire system collapsed all at once. Nobody could make a phone call. Nobody. I, no, it would. I mean, everybody tried to use the card and it was just dead. It was like, you know, somebody had absconded with the money, and I'm not entirely sure that isn't what happened. <laughs> uh, but we all, I was in a hotel in Denver, and I called Rob Flater, my editor, and I said, look, until I get an actual Bell telephone credit card to make business calls with, I am not leaving this hotel, and I'm eating nothing but room service three days a week. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, I mean, you said... It was that kind of stuff all the time. You just you never got you know the the the, the legendary story that you know one day out of the blue the Mexican accountant showed up, uh oh, and just absolutely you know beheaded the business and executive staff outside of Frank, <laughs> and supposedly they had to pry open the desk of one of the financial. Guys, and in his bottom drawer were unpaid invoices totaling over a million bucks. Oh, come on. Honest to God, he was doing the same thing that we all did with our phone bills in like college. You know, <laughs> if I don't see it, I don't have to pay it. That's right. that's right. <laughs> well, and then this was in this was in like I this was right around the time I took over that column. So it was right around the time, March or April, and they were going to close it then. But they bought themselves three or four months uh, and then realized that, you know, the money pit was just never going to close. Right. And, and they folded. But again, for, you know, the year and a half, it took us to spend $150 million of Emilio's money. We're just the guys to do it. Oh, man, we, that's right. This is a completely doomed and futile gesture on our part, and we're just the guys to do it. Um, you know, and, and you know, Johnette says it all the time. She says, you know, find another billionaire. We're all on board again.
1: Oh, yeah, right, right. That's right.
2: Sign up the circus again. I mean, and the, other, the, the serious problem, of course, with it was its attempt. I mean, the, the serious, not the serious problem, but one of the serious problems. Was this attempt to be both local and national? It should have just been a national newspaper. Right. Because, unlike, you know, the comparison they all made was uh, because Italy and France had the uh, national sports newspapers. Yeah, but Italy and France didn't have local newspapers with sports sections, you know? So you, they would have been better off just making it a national paper. Yeah. And not, you know, flying people to, you know, trying to parachute somebody into Chicago to be a sports columnist or, you know, Denver or something. And, uh, you know, I think that was, I think that was a fundamental. I think it was, you know, make a mistake made of, you know, grand ambition, but a mistake anyway. But it was, I'll tell you what, it was, it was a lot of fun. And I met, you know, David Granger, who I worked with, you know, through the next 30 years. Right. right. uh, Both at GQ and at Esquire. Right. And I mean, I got out of it what I meant to get out of it, which was, to break nationally and and have a career beyond going to Bruins games every Wednesday night. Well, let's go from there. Let's go from there because you did break nationally
1: and you end up writing for everybody. The ESPN's Grantland, New York Times Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Los Angeles Times Magazine, on and on and on. And um, and you wrote books. And one of the books that you wrote was Moving the Chains, Tom Brady in the Pursuit of Everything. And I, I'm just really curious about this um, book. I, I enjoyed it when it came out. It came out when Brady was still pretty young. He was like 28, kind
2: of in the prime. Yeah, he was, it was, it was, was, I caught him at the moment immediately before he became Tom Brady brand new. That's
1: what I'm really curious about. At that time, as a writer, what was Brady like? How did you get inside with him? And then, of course, later when you become a brand, you're not doing that. What was it like to deal with Brady at that time?
2: Well... He was he was an interesting guy, and he remains an interesting guy to me. Although he's you know there's certain elements of you know the empire that I you know I find just a little bit weird, mystifying. Yeah, uh, he spent six months trying to decide whether he was going to cooperate with with the project, and then told me he wasn't going to. However, he let everybody else. In his life up to that point, talk to me. His parents, his coaches, his, psycho- his uh, athletic counselor at Michigan, uh, Lloyd Carr, uh, you know, everybody uh, in, his, in his life. He could have stopped the whole thing and didn't do it. And I think he, he, did, he did that because he was curious as to how this was going to all play out. True. And I found that approach You know, very, very fascinating. I had one 25-minute sit-down with him, and that was only because Sports Illustrated had named him Sportsman of the Year, the year I was following him around. Yeah, and you wrote the cover piece for that, yeah, 2005. And uh, so I got the book. You know, I I did the book, and, and and it came out, and, you know, obviously I made sure he got a copy. And sometime about four or five months after it came out, I got. A, you know, I heard this loud kind of thump as the mail came through the door. And I got a four-page handwritten letter from him thanking me for the book. Really? And talking about how it, you know, it did bring up some painful memories. And, you know, he, he it brought up some stuff he'd, he'd tried very hard to forget about his time at Michigan and so forth. But he was grateful for me to do it. And, you know, the rest is history. So, I think you know watching him gingerly approach the status that he eventually achieved was a good time in his life for an extended examination of who he was, True. because all of the temptations were were suddenly there. Why do you think he thanked you? I think he thanked me because he sincerely enjoyed the project, and and I think you know I I, I think he he. I think he by and large, he probably liked the way he came off in the book, but I, uh, you know, I, I think he really respected the work and, and I, God knows I respect anybody who still writes longhand. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, obviously, you know, since then, you know, we haven't exactly, you know, we, we, I want to say grown apart because that sounds like it was my prom date, but, you know, we, I just, we just haven't had any reason to connect. Well I think he respected the work because he respected
1: the work and what I mean by that is he did the work that he has to do to do his job to be great so he sees somebody else doing the work uh and whatever you know whatever if you're a writer and you're doing the work he sees that yeah
2: I think that I think that's I mean I'd like to think that was true and I like to think that uh you yeah, know that that's a very nice thought i hadn't hadn't really dwelt on that but you're in that you know it's entirely possible. He's he does think that way. You know, he's very much aware of everything he had to do to get where he was. You know, and, and I had you know this long conversation with his his uh quarterback coach, Tom, who, who had developed him from high school. And he talked about how Brady had just been an absolute beast on the drills over and over and over again you know, he put the dots on the ground Here. to work on his footwork and throwing next to a brick wall so he wouldn't throw a sidearm because if he threw sidearms, he'd scrape his knuckles Here. so he'd throw overhand. That's how he oh. developed his motion. Uh, in fact, uh, in fact, in a parking lot of a Denny's in California, Tom gave me a brief lesson on how to throw a football. Here. He said, you know, he, he taught me that Reverse C, you gotta have the reverse C and you gotta throw it from behind your ear. And damn, if I didn't wing one at him, I was very I was very <laughs> impressed by this guy's ability to teach people to teach schmoes how to be quarterback. I think it could teach a writer how to throw a football. Yeah, that's huh? Exactly yeah. right. That's the way I said.
0: <laughs> have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean really no. Know. know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. the outcome and what it means for the championship so for your regular hit of formula one analysis subscribe to the f1 strategy report wherever you get your favorite podcasts the strategy report is a beer mogul podcast on the evergreen podcasts network my name's michael laminato and i'll catch you after the checkered flag
1: when you think about brady and, and the success he had what drove him because most athletes or most people in general if you get to a certain level of success you know, you get satisfied. We all like to be soft and comfortable. Uh, he didn't seem to
2: ever find that spot. I, I honestly think the experience at Michigan marked him forever, where he, the, you know, he kept getting put off. He had the incredible, incredibly dumb experiment where he would play one, where he played the first quarter and Drew Hansen would play the second quarter, and whoever Lloyd Carr thought had done better would play the rest of the game, which was just bizarre. It just shouldn't have happened. But then again, they would never have recruited Drew Henson without that deal. But Brady knew, how, Brady knew how much better than Henson he was. Everybody on the team knew that. Uh, he had, you know, there, was, there, were, there was no question that Brady was the unanimous choice in that locker room if they had taken a vote. Uh, and I don't think he ever lost that particular chip on his shoulder. Uh, And I think he used it, you know, quite obviously and quite admirably to become what he became. At the risk of generalizing, do you think that chip on the shoulder,
1: from your experiences with athletes, the greatest and the coaches, do you think that chip on the shoulder is common?
2: Oh, common. Absolutely. I mean, I have got one. I mean, I spent all those years at the Herald realizing that I was, you know, essentially, or feeling anyway, that I wasn't you know, at a place where where my talent was being fully recognized and fully, you know, in, in engaged and involved. And I had a chip on my shoulder when I got to the National. There's no question. I had, you know, I felt I had something to prove. I, I complained all the time uh, when I, you know, when when I, when I couldn't go up the ladder, when I, uh, you know, I had, uh, you know, I kept getting turned down at Sports Illustrated because Mark Mulvoy didn't like me and what I'd written into Herald. And, you know, I get turned down at, you know, for other newspaper jobs because I had a reputation as being difficult, uh, which I, by the way, I'm not. Uh, I'm a very, I mean, I'm a pretty good guy at it. I, I'm not, I mean, I, I don't fight for every for every comma. In a way, that comes from the Herald where I gradually adopted the philosophy of this doesn't have to be the best thing I ever wrote it just happens. It has to be the best thing I wrote in the 25 minutes I had to write.
1: Yeah, you make peace with that, and
2: right. then you put it out, and you suck it up, and you go get it right. tomorrow. Right. Uh, and that you know that's been very helpful. But yeah, I mean, I understand it. I understand it because I had the chip on my shoulder too, and it it drove me.
1: So you saw it in, in some of the athletes and coaches that you wrote about. You you could relate, and maybe maybe relating personally helped you then contextualize what they were going through or dealing with or what drove them
2: well yeah I mean I, I i don't i don't i don't look upon people having the chip as a pejorative um I think you know obviously you know if you treat the rest of the if the, you treat the rest of humanity with disrespect then it's it's not a good thing to have the chip but in terms of driving you professionally I never thought of that as a as 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 a drawback to assessing any athlete Mm -hmm. or any coach. All right, you mentioned coach. Is it Belichick or is it Brady? I think, you know, gun to my head, I'd say it was Brady. But it was Belichick who saw him. It was Belichick who rolled the dice, you know, benching a multimillion-dollar franchise, allegedly franchise quarterback. For a sixth round pick from Michigan, whom nobody had ever heard of, you know, so it was Belichick who put the defenses together that allowed them to win that first Super Bowl. It was Belichick who put the teams together for him, uh, and you know it, he hasn't done a a very good job of putting a team together for for Mac Jones. I think by and by and large it was Brady, but you know it was it was Belichick who was the architect, and I think. The difference at this point in the long view of history is so infinitesimal that it's almost not worth talking about. Yeah, it's chicken and an egg. Yeah. It, it's the combination. Yeah, it was I mean, it was a very happy, you know, you know, horses for courses kind of collision of an ideal coach finding his ideal quarterback. A defensive coach, by and large, finding his ideal quarterback. How did you deal with the Belichick press conferences? I didn't. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I sat there and listened to the game. You know, the guy's going to say, if the guy's going to say nothing, you have nothing to report. It's an easy job. But I'll tell you, when I was doing the Brady book, I put in for an interview and sit down with Belichick. And he said, I won't do it till after the season, you know, and who knew that. And luckily that was the year they lost to Denver in the first round of the playoffs. So this season, you go through the Super Bowl, and I wasn't getting my, one of my crucial interviews in February with an April book deadline. But he gave me four hours in his office. Really? To talk about Brady. Four hours? Didn't dodge one question. Uh, disagreed with me on a lot of them, on my perceptions and my, my interpretations of what happened, but never, <clears throat> never no commented me. Talked football. And boy, did that guy talk football? Oh my God! If you're lucky enough to get him started on both the history of the game and the minutiae of the game, you will get you will get a PhD. Well, that's that's so funny
1: to hear. Like you can't shut Bill Belichick up.
2: Well, once uh, <laughs> once a year, he takes the beat writers and whoever other media people are there into the film room, and he does a seminar uh, breaking down film about what. You know what he wants to teach you about football. Well, Paul Brown used to do that. Yeah, I think I think, and I think that Bill Belichick does it because he knows Paul Brown does it because he's probably you know one of the five NFL coaches who knows knows who Paul Brown is. You know, I mean, yeah, it's sad, the modern father of pro football. Yeah, but still, I mean, do you know, you know, the guy in LA or you know the guy in Philadelphia knows who Paul Brown is. By the way, the Browns fired both Paul Brown and Bill Belichick. Think about that. Yeah, well, (laughs) well, I mean, you know, Belichick had to live through that, and he was, and he's, if he ever gets started on it, he's very funny about the last year in Cleveland, where that last home game where they were ripping the seats out of Municipal Stadium and throwing them on the field. (laughs) Apparently, the level apparently the level of hatred for Art Modell in that last season, when everybody knew he was moving the team to Baltimore. Uh, apparently that was just unprecedented in NFL in NFL history. At least, at least Belichick thinks so.
1: But again, the idea of Belichick going on and on and and being effusive with writers is uh, almost comical to think about because you know we've all been around him in press conference settings when he's uh, basically like trying to talk to a pillar of salt. Yeah. Um, so the, when he's engaging, though— um, that has to be quite a memory for you as a journalist.
2: Well, I just remember that the one day that he did the film breakdown, the one I, the year I was following the team, he brought us in and he, he ran a bunch of uh, films from his days as defensive coordinator for the Giants and films of games they had played against the 49ers, which was you know that was the clash of the Titans back in the day. And he ran one play, and he kept running it over and over again. It was a uh, 49ers had the ball in about the Giants, I don't know, 15, 20 yard line. And he kept running it and he kept saying, look, here's so-and-so and he's doing every, He's top point in the Giants defense because he's doing exactly right. He's doing, and this guy over here is doing exactly the way we coached him. And look at this. This is exactly the way we did it. And then he ran the film to the end and Jerry Rice makes this a spectacular catch at the flag in the end zone for a touchdown. And Belichick shuts off, the, shuts off the tape and shuts off the film and says, you know, sometimes you do everything right and the son of a bitch just makes a play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I mean, you talk about a guy who has, who has his job in the right perspective, you know, and I'm, you know, because I'm sure after that, you know, Parcells was all over him for letting rights do, you know, get open or something. And he kept saying to us, look, he's doing exactly what we said. He's like, that's the way you guard Jerry Rice. And, you know, Rice turns around and jumps nine feet in the air and catches the ball, you know, behind his head and comes down with it and keeps his feet in bounds.
1: Well, that's the thing that's always amazing, right? When I used to think about, like, you're watching, say, the NBA and it's the 12th guy on the bench, he's still among a handful, you know, a handful, but a a couple hundred guys that are the best at what they're doing right now on the planet. So you forget that these are all the special ones, but among those, there's the one of the one.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, Charlie Weiss again. While I was doing the uh, the uh, Brady book, uh, I went out to Notre Dame and talked to him at Notre Dame at the time, and talked to him at length about about his experiences with Brady. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, "On planet Earth, on any given day." There are about twelve people who can adequately play quarterback at the NFL level, and he said there are three quarterbacks on every one of the thirty NFL teams. He said that means that there are seventy guys drawing a paycheck who can't play quarterback in the NFL. <laughs> well, I mean, some people thought Charlie was Charlie oh, yeah, was drawing I mean, a paycheck never, too at Notre Dame. then. well, <laughs> well, yeah, that's uh, that was this was before all that happened but uh he uh, yeah, I mean, if you've ever played you know in a pickup game with anybody who played any kind any level of of high level college or even pro Bowl of any sport the the level of of talent is is almost un almost unimaginable. Yeah. I mean, I had a friend of mine get in a get in a pickup game someplace in East Boston with Gerald Henderson, the old Celtic guard and Henderson was kind of you know going half speed or whatever and somebody said something to him about you know not D and <laughs> up or something and Henderson just went bananas for the next 15 minutes stole the ball from everybody dunked every shot and then walked out and you know it was just a this was a guy who was the best journeyman player in the exactly. NBA won a ring uh you know with the Celtics because he was on the you know he in 84, he was made a big steal against the Lakers that saved the game in the garden in the playoffs. Uh, but otherwise, he was not somebody you'd ever think about as an NBA player. And he was, he was on another planet compared to the guys right. in his gym, most of whom had you know, played in high school or some of whom had played in college and yeah. stuff. And again, um, among the, the journeymen, there is the person who was above
1: all of them. And I wanna wrap this up, you've been so kind with your time, but I wanna talk about the one of the one, and uh, that's Tiger Woods. And you obviously, you might be as well known for any sports article as the profile you did about Tiger and GQ in 1997. Tiger Woods, the man, a man. We've talked a lot about access and being able to talk to people as a journalist, I've always been curious about how that story came together. It's the infamous story where Tiger's telling a bunch of jokes, and this is right after his father, Earl Woods, was basically acting like John the Baptist, talking about him in the SI Sportsman of the Year story written by the incredible Gary Smith. But you end up doing the story about Tiger when he was so young, and it really blew everybody's minds about you know this young brand. Made him human. How did that come about, Charlie, when you look back on it as a writer?
2: Well, we got it. We, we, we'll go back into the negotiations at Esquire, uh, GQ, excuse me, and later at Esquire. We had a wonderful woman named Lisa Hintelman. And her job, she used to work for Pat Kingsley, a very big Hollywood press agent. And Lisa's job, was to wrangle celebrities for our covers. So she was at GQ for, for this particular She article. was at GQ. Okay. She okay. came to with okay. David. Uh, and, but this was at GQ. And you know, her job was to get people for a cover. And she swears to this day, well, Lisa was one of my best friends, she swears to this day that negotiating with Cyrus people was the worst negotiating period. He was with IMG at, you know. The was with right. IMG at the time. The hardest, toughest, Biggest pain in the ass negotiation you ever had. They were planning on one big magazine flash in anticipation of the masthead in '97, which you be want. And it came down to us and the Atlantic. And I can't remember who was going to write the story for the Atlantic, but they decided that. And I don't know, you know, whether the Tiger was involved in the decision or not. So Lisa goes and tries to. And start to negotiate the photo shoot and the amount of time I would have with him. And, you know, basically what you do with anybody, you're going to put on the cover of, of a glossy national magazine. Uh, and she negotiated me a specific two-hour block, two-and-a-half-hour block, which would include the photo shoot. And I said, you know, I didn't know anything when I yeah, I said, Yeah. I said, sure, fine. And, you know, that would include the ride from his house to and from the photo shoot. That was my interview time. Yeah, I think he was at his mother's house and then they you went to Long Beach yeah, he was, at, he was at or, yeah, yeah, he was at Tina's house. He had just won uh, at La Costa that okay. weekend. I had gone out to to watch him win that tournament and, uh, and follow him around and stuff. And so, yeah, I was staying at the Airport Marriott in L.A., uh, because Los Angeles gives me the willies, and I never, I've never, I've never been comfortable in Los Angeles. I'm kind of like Woody Allen and <laughs> Annie Hall. I want to like drive bumper cars, but the you know, limo picked me up, and I chatted up Vincent, the limo driver, all the way down. We picked him up, and then we the photo shoot was in downtown LA, in a warehouse across the street from an auto de, auto detailing store, and so we, you know, we went in. I did my interview with him, you know, coming back up and it was basically biographical. And how does it feel to be Tiger Woods, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm sitting in the photo shoot, which was part of my time, which Lisa had, you know, left a quart of blood on the floor negotiating. And so he starts telling the jokes. And I'm pretty amazed because I know that when I was, you know, 23 or 24, my idea of small talk with a group of adults I'd never met was not to tell dirty jokes. But, you know, here horses for courses. And he's 21 year, he's 21 years old at the time. Yeah. 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 Well, when I was 21, I wasn't telling dirty jokes. The grown ups I didn't know. Anyway, so I'm sitting down saying, thinking this is fairly remarkable. So I'm writing them down. And he looks up at me at one point and says, Hey, don't write any of this down. And I look back at him and I said, Too late. And I don't know if he thought I was kidding or not, but I wasn't kidding. This was part of my time. Uh, You know, anything that happens in my two and a half hour, harshly negotiated block is mine to use. So the photo shoot gets done and we get back in the car. We're gonna go back to Long Beach or wherever. And he starts talking to Vincent and talking about whether or not he thinks that women follow black athletes along around because they thought they think black athletes have big penises. And I'm sitting there with my notebook out, writing it down. Vincent's trying to stay on the road and not, you know, drive into a tree being asked these can, these questions. And then, so I, you know, it, it, we, we finish up, we say goodbye. He goes back in the house, Vincent, takes me back to the Marriott. Uh, I sit in the Marriott bar and drink a couple of beers and start putting my notes together. And then I go back to Massachusetts and go down to my writing office in the basement and write the story. I mean, this was one, this was like almost like automatic writing. I wrote the Tiger Wood story in two and a half really? hours when I stopped for lunch. Yeah, I was, it was easy. It just flowed. And it's it, nothing like that has ever happened with me again. Why was it easy? I don't know. It was just, it was all in, I tend when I write to think in blocks of paragraphs anyway. I don't think of sentence by sentence. I see blocks of paragraphs. And that's just the way my mind works. And this was, you know, went off like clockwork. And I sent it in and it ran virtually untouched. And then all hell broke loose. Yeah, because it came out in March. It came out in March, the March edition
1: or March. Yeah. No, the April April edition edition came out in March. But it was so the April the, edition. Yeah, the monkey yeah. wins the Masters, your article right. comes out.
2: Yeah, and nothing happens for a while. Uh, you know, it, it comes out, and then he wins the Masters. So that just obliterates everything. And and I figure, oh man, I've got you know, I I'm home free. Um, you know, I, you know nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to become a thing. And then Fuzzy Zeller runs his mouth. Oh yeah, right, right. And then gets disciplined. And then the story becomes. How come Fuzzy gets disciplined and Tiger tells these jokes and isn't? And then it becomes a thing. Then I'm getting deluged with interview requests and, you know, bad emails and, you know, and rudimentary emails at the time.
1: So what was that like for you personally as a journalist when when all of a sudden you're in the eye of the storm?
2: It's an awkward place for people in our business to be. But in some ways, it's kind of helpful to have that kind of comeuppance. You know, you get a little taste of what you can do to somebody else's life if you do this badly. And I don't think I did this badly, but I, you, get to, you get to know what it's like to be on the other side of the horde. And, uh, you know, I, I remember Earl went on Charlie Rose and accused me of wiretapping the limo driver. Really, <laughs> And Charlie Rose picked up a copy of the magazine and showed it to Earl and said, I haven't read this and I never will. And he throws the magazine down on the table and off. And the late Art Cooper, God bless him, the editor of GQ, sent him a box of copies of the magazine, saying if he wanted to make sure that if if Charlie ever wanted to read it, he would uh, he would have a copy handy wherever he was. Well, Earl, Earl is one thing. What about Tiger? What was his response to you
1: from that article?
2: Tiger and I have never spoken since that since the story came out. I know he wasn't happy with it. He, I mean, he said some things I, you know, I, I, I think he basically went along with the whole, you know, I don't, I know IMG felt betrayed that, you know, they had somehow I was obligated to, you know, go along with the program or something and you know, screw up, screw IMG. I don't care if they are the Pope's agent, you know, they're basically Lamprey and Tiger was the shark. I didn't, you know, even the but, you know, I, I, I can't remember if he, if he, he didn't speak out on it. Very much. We just never, you know, I, I didn't cover a lot of golf, so I wasn't around. I did cover him at the PGA up in Rochester in 2013, and I know he didn't play well. And I know he saw me because I was in the crowd around him after his round, but nothing happened. Uh, and when all of, everything went bad on that memorable Thanksgiving, you know, I got a whole bunch of phone calls asking me to be on various yeah. TV shows talk about, you know, my, my career as the tiger whisperer. And I begged off. I mean, it had become a very messy family saga. And I certainly didn't want to be the go-to guy on tiger Woods's sex life. That wasn't the point of my story before. And, you know, I, I just, I couldn't deal with it. So
1: Charlie, how do you look back on that GQ article 26 years later?
2: I think it was a good piece of work. Uh, I think it fulfilled most of what interested me about where he was as as a person. And in a way, it was a template for the Brady book because he was on the brink of what would come afterwards. Mm -hmm. Just as Brady was when I wrote the book. I mean, it was more imminent in Tiger's case because he'd already won a whole bunch of tournaments and he would go on, you know, the month the magazine came out to win the Masters. But, you. Know, I mean, I think I think it 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 gave the reader an insight that the reader might not have had, and that it did so in an entertaining fashion. And that's really all you can ask. And at least for me, from a magazine profile. Well, you've done that throughout
1: your career in in so many pieces in sports, and obviously now in politics. And I know I have my own Charlie Pierce clip file. I still have I still have a paper clip file. My wife thinks I need like a. To take all these papers down in the basement and just get rid of them—it's like a fire hazard.
2: <laughs> I have a file cabinet well, like, like I, J. Edgar Hoover. I—I <laughs> I don't have a—I don't have a lot. That's interesting. My wife, who's also a journalist, has clip files. Oh, I don't have them. I, I just, still you know, do. I—I I mean, I—I don't know that I even—I've outside of the fact that it appeared in an anthology of my stuff. I don't know that I have a copy of the well, title. I'll go it downstairs it. and get it if, if you want. One, I'll mail it to you. <laughs> no, that's, that's okay. That's okay. Thanks. You. Uh, you know, I, I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure I do, but I don't know where it is. Well, this has been a, this
1: has been a real thrill for me. I've, I've long been an admirer of your writing. I, I know at one final four.
2: Well, I, well, I'll tell you what, Todd. I love this project. I mean, I think you're doing, you're really doing God's work with it because there's so many people that I. It was. I was just happy to hear from them. Well,
1: thank you. And I, I, what I'm trying to do is, is history. You know, capture what was it like to do yeah. that job at that time? And it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, with the, the conversations that we used to have in that circus. Now we're letting other people sit with us.
2: Yeah, I mean that. That's and I, and I admire, by the way, your backdrop of credentials. I've always, I've always longed to do that. I haven't done it. I have. I have all my credentials, yeah. but they're all in a box. Well, we've got people
1: sitting with us. I do want to point out one time at a Final Four in the media room, I think we were in Indy, um, I was I was sitting next to my good buddy Jerry Tipson from from uh, Lexington.
2: Oh, I love the, t- yeah, I here's love the why. tip. I love
1: it. Because you know, you put your bag down and I always sit with Jerry. We we go back to my college days in the eighties. And um anyway, you sit across from me and this is where you sit now for 4 days and you and I don't know each other. Uh, but you know Tipton and I know Tipton so the three of us were chit chatting and all I remember for 4 days was whenever I would type you're sitting across from me and I'm thinking what in the hell does it matter what I say or write cuz Charlie Pierce is sitting across from me writing and it just wasn't a little bit intimidating for me as
2: a writer. Hey, we all tell we all we all tell the tribe the, the, we all tell the tribe our stories yeah you know, it's stories in a different way in our own way, and we all do the work, and the work is worth it you know that's that's all you can, that's all you can do there will there will be you know other other stories for other people. I mean I'm getting caught up now i don't i mean I haven't had an editor since i I went full time on the internet in two thousand and eleven. I haven't had an editor who's thirty years old yet mm-hmm. right you know I mean <laughs> it's, it's preposterous, but it's true in any event. Uh, I, I, I love this because, as I said, you're, people are, are learning what wonderful people, Roycey and Johnette and Arch and, 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 and Joan Ryan and everybody. I mean, Joan Ryan, my God, she wrote probably the most important sports book of her time, all of which has come true in horrible ways. Right. And hardly anyone remembers it. Yeah. Little Girls in Pretty Boxes predicted all of what happened right. with Larry Nasser. Right. Decades ago. You know, and Johnette, you know, Johnette's just Johnette. She's a tough kid for a tough kid from Pittsburgh. Right, right. Uh, but in any event, I think I I love this idea. I spent like after we agreed to do this, I spent like an afternoon just listening to all of them. Well, that's great. That means a lot to me. Yeah. I think I don't know if I listened to part two of Reutze yet.
1: I appreciate it, Charlie. Um, I'm going to let you get back to documenting the daily fighting in politics for Esquire.
2: Yeah, who knows? I mean, I mean, something crazy may have happened in Congress. Imagine Oh, that. no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thanks a lot. <laughs> Best wishes to you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Huffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on.